0: Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and e-books online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Have you been researching and learning about regenerative living, permaculture and natural building for a while, but are still a bit unsure of where to start? Are you new to these topics and feeling overwhelmed about the sheer scope of information and knowledge that's out there to be absorbed? Are you a seasoned professional in the field looking to expand your experience and expertise with other professionals who are pushing the boundaries of regenerative
1: projects? Well, you're in luck. Here at Abundant Edge, we have just what you need to take the next essential steps towards putting the information from these podcasts, interviews, books, and articles into action. We offer courses for beginners, intermediates, and even seasoned professionals to learn from successful regenerative business owners, farmers, builders, and other artisans who are keen to share their knowledge.
0: Our teachers and facilitators have been working and experimenting tirelessly to provide the most up-to-date information available to help you put your skills and efforts to use in regenerating the planet and transforming the global economy into one that abandons the outdated model of consumption and destruction into one of health, stewardship, cooperation, and abundance. Come and get your hands dirty. You can get a full list of courses and trainings as well as volunteer opportunities now at AbundantAge.com. We're looking forward to seeing you here. It's time once again to check in with Atulia Bingham, one of my favorite voices and innovators in the natural building world. Now, Atulia is the author of Mud Mountain, Mud Ball, and the newest release, Dirt Witch, each of which tell the story of her journey of building her own home and alternative lifestyle, first in Turkey, and most recently her move to the north of Spain. In the last interview I did with Atulia back in season one, she was still on the road and searching for her new home. This time we catch up with her now that she's found her site and is in the planning stages of a new off-grid lifestyle. In this interview, Atulia speaks about common earth bag building mistakes and how to avoid them, earthen plaster recipes and techniques, how living close to nature can transform you, and much more. I would especially encourage those of you listening at home to check out her blog, which you can find at themudhome.com or by clicking on the direct link in the show notes for this episode at AbundantEdge.com. Now I'll turn things over to Atulia. Atulia, how are you doing today? Thanks so much for making time to be on the podcast.
1: Oh, hello. Hello. Everything's good here. Thank you. Thank you, Oliver. Yep.
0: (laughs) So we've had you on in the previous season. And so if anybody would like to learn more about your background and how you got started in Natural Building, they can go back and listen to the first episode. But why don't you give us an update on where you are now and what projects you're attempting at the moment?
1: Yes, yes. Um life as as it is, life has sort of turned around 180 degrees. So I was in Turkey and I had to leave there for various reasons. And now I'm in northern Spain and um completely different kind of project. Well not completely, I'm still still I'm still a one-woman show, but um instead of uh Earthbag Building, which is what I was doing last time, this time it's it's looks like it's going to be more of a stone Mud mortar cob kind of hybrid renovation thing going on here this time, but still off grid because um, that's that's the way I like to live.
0: <laughs> Certainly, one of the things that I really admire about you is that you take into context your place and resources rather than you know like the first time earth bags might have been what made most sense for your your place and your climate. Yeah, but you're willing to yeah. consider that your new location might be better served through a different building method.
1: Absolutely. Totally, and I think that's that's always the case. Absolutely, and in Turkey, I'd still say, I still say, um, after all my experience, yeah, earthbag is very good for Turkey um, for so many reasons, not least the, the seismic thing. But uh, here, here it's not a dry climate; it's a wet climate. We have a damp climate, and there's so many, so many stone, beautiful stone ruins um, laying around the countryside that have been abandoned. So why? Would would you increase your, your footprint really by making a new house when you could restore an old one? And I've always thought that actually, but that possibility really didn't exist in Turkey. Um, whereas here it's in abundance. So um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's why, why I chose that way.
0: Well, let's bring our listeners back a little bit for those who haven't been following your blog or um, what you've been posting online in your books. How did you come to resettling in Northern Spain? What were some of the criteria you looked for for a home and how does the local climate and geology there kind of shape what you're attempting to do?
1: Right. So, can you, can you recap the first question? I got lost there. Sorry, that
0: was a full bag. <laughs> 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 so, how did you relocate from Turkey and settle in a place in northern Spain?
1: Right, yeah. Well, Well, I had to, had to for, for a number of reasons. Uh, well, first of all, somebody somebody started building next to me, right? So that was the first thing that happened in Turkey. Um, and, and I was pretty well protected. I only had one side that was open uh, that had a neighbor. And of course, that side was, yeah, it's, that happened. So that was the first thing that made me, really pushed me to start thinking. Um, and then, of course, the, the same year, the, in, in the same time, a number of other things happened happened and I really felt the land was kicking me out and I've learned to pay attention when when that kind of thing happens and I feel I was absolutely right I have no regrets at all about that decision um politically things went went very um, yeah <laughs> very wonky and uh, and and subsequently they've gone economically wonky so actually if I hadn't left when I did I I, I would have struggled to leave so yeah I was absolutely I think I was absolutely right in my decision. And of course that shaped my, the, I've, I'd already, so the last time when I went, when I did this on what I called my mountain in Turkey, it was a much smaller plot. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a clue. And it was, it was, it was. Um, I hadn't bought the plot with with any intention of of living an off grid kind of sustainable lifestyle. I hadn't done that at all. I wasn't even in that frame of mind when I bought the land, which had been a decade earlier. So so really, I went onto the land and somehow hobbled through uh, and survived but I had no water and for two years I was without running water in a dry area where it doesn't rain for five months of the year and yeah that that I I wasn't willing to do that again let's just say that so so already I had two criteria I didn't want neighbors for one thing and I wanted water and I, I I would say to anybody who's looking to move off grid that should be your number one thing that you're paying attention to because you can kind of get by with everything else but you you can't get by without water and there are other things that you look for as well that you start to um pay attention to once you've done done it once and so the next thing i paid attention to you want you want some way of powering your your land so so i was looking for a south facing or a very sunny plot which is what i've got so it had to have be a sunny plot It had to have no neighbors (laughs) It had to, um, and it had to have water. And I have two water sources now. So like you, I'm kind of, um, I'm covered. I feel I'm covered. And it's a rainy area. It's a wet area. I've, I've gone completely from an arid climate to a, a temperate climate. It's not cold, but it's quite damp. And I'm actually loving it.
0: No, I agree. Um, water is one of the most essential things that you can identify and have access to on any project. But especially when you're off grid and you're not having that support system that most people are used to, uh, it can make all the difference. It's a big criteria as to where we chose our spot here in Guatemala as well. We're suffering, well, yeah. not suffering so much, um, but we're experiencing a bit of a, an unusual drought here in the rainy season. It's It rains a little bit, but not as much as it normally does. But because we picked a spot next to the river, we've been able to irrigate our crops and uh, haven't seen any dip in productivity. The way a lot of other people around the ridges here, who don't have access to water, are suffering from.
1: Yeah, that's that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah.
0: So. Going from here, you've learned a ton from your experience in Turkey, and I was wondering if you have any more advice or things that you're going to be doing differently this second time around after having lived once on a small off-grid lifestyle.
1: Yes, there's loads of things. Um, yes, really, really, it's amazing. I didn't realize how much I learned, actually, until until I started this project. And I've, I have had my difficulties, but... but- it feels a lot more manageable and um, a lot more comfortable as well than it was the last time. So I also realized another thing I learned, and in fact, I, I actually I, re- I wrote a post on it and I put this actually as the number one thing that you need is shelter. Um, and you need to sort of ha- think how you're going to have a temporary shelter while you're setting up the rest of your infrastructure. Because you, it's last time I was in a tent and Turkey was the right climate for a tent. It's fu- it was fine, but um, but this time I was very aware that I needed something a little bit a little bit more robust. So I ha- have a van. Having said that, the van has brought its own issues, um, which I wouldn't have had if I'd been in a tent. But, but nonetheless, it's a lot more comfortable to, to be doing this from, from a van and from a, from a shelter, which is pretty solid if it rains or if there's a storm or, and it's already got a cooker in it and it's already got sort of the basic amenities. So, um, yeah. So that's the first thing I learned shelter. You, you want to have that kind of something fast and easy that, that you can temporarily rest in while you're um while you're setting everything up and then there's water of course and and i know also what else i've learned is what order things need to go in and i i was really confused about that i didn't understand that the first time and i was doing all sorts of ridiculous things i was planting trees um when i when i hadn't even got i hadn't even got a roof over my head and i was planting trees i hadn't water <laughs> you know and I, and uh, somehow those trees survived but nonetheless it wasn't I, I wouldn't do that again it's not um, it's not a smart way of going about it one thing though that I think I did do do right the first time and that I followed it through and I've copied this time is the slowness of it um, I didn't really build anything sort of solid for about six months on, I mean, I built temporary sort of structures to keep me going, but, um, like a composting toilet, for example, but I didn't really build or make any drastic sort of decisions until I'd been there a season. And that was. I learned so much from that too because the land talks to you and and it it's a living entity it's full of living creatures and it's full of full of all kinds of of messages and clues and secrets that you don't really learn about until you live in it and um so so I've I've done exactly the same thing and I've taken that time to get to know the land and I still am. That's the process I'm in now. And I'm really happy I do that because every day I see something else. I'm like, oh, I didn't realise that. Or oh yeah, I hadn't thought about that. And it's it's slowly, slowly something is evolving in 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 sort of my mind about how I'm going to go about doing things.
0: Yeah, that observational period is absolutely key. We were fortunate that uh, myself and my colleagues here in Guatemala had actually lived in this valley, uh, most of us for a couple of years almost, before purchasing the land that we had, but also before coming up with any of the designs for what we we're going to be doing on it. And that observational period, if you're paying attention, if you bother to take the time to actually... Um, absorb the information rather than immediately jumping in and, and trying to make design decisions can make all the difference in how well those design decisions actually impact your land.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's so, so true. I'm just sort of thinking now, you see the lot la- what I'm noticing as the summer goes by, you're already noticing the sun's trajectory, for example, where exactly does it rise? Where does it set? And and that will change from summer to winter and you can't really grasp it until you you sit on the land itself um that's that's just one example and and where the water flows as well where where in when it floods when it rains where is that water running because if it's if you try and build it doesn't matter what you do you can you can come up with your engineering project in your head but if you build your house right where that water's flowing you're going to continually be battling against Against the elements, um, but there, there are all sorts of other things as well. Sometimes you just get a feeling, a sense that that certain places are sort of quite inviting, and other places really want to be left alone. And I think. Every, every plot of land needs which humans are in needs a space as well where nature is just allowed to do its own thing and um, and so so that creates a sort of balance between the human and the nature and and those two things and I, I always feel in a piece of land there are parts of it that actually very much feel inviting and want our, our presence there and sort of seem to welcome it there are other parts which which really want to be left alone which I quite understand. <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. And respecting those spots and realizing that they still have a place within the larger design that you interact with more often.
1: Absolutely there's things like leaving the grass wild and leaving patches totally wild that that's going to bring about a whole whole different ecosystem there which um, of, of animals and, and all sorts of insects and creatures and and plant life which you don't even sometimes we don't even know how that impacts um, uh, everything but sometimes we do know and they can be thriving places for bees and things like this and 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 pest eating. Um, animals as well like I used to leave on my other piece of land I used to leave um, I left all these bushes I felt like the area that I thought wanted to be left alone had all these bushes on it and people said I should be clearing those bushes away and what were they doing there well actually as it happened they, they had these they, they sprouted all these seeds in um, yeah, the, exactly the right time of year, at harvest time, so that the birds didn't eat my fruit. And no one could understand why they weren't eating my fruit, but it was because they preferred these seeds. And had I cleared this whole area of, of, of bushes, um, they wouldn't have had those seeds. So they probably would have gone for my fruit trees.
0: Mm, Yeah, that was fortunate that you were actually bothering to observe that rather than just (laughs) listening to whatever advice of people who are normally just uh, taking elements out because they don't understand how they interact.
1: Well, that's another thing I've learned, actually. Don't listen to too many people's advice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Everybody's got some. Everybody's got some. And quite honestly, it, most of it's not really based on anything, or it might be based on their experience, but their experience is totally different to you. I really mm-hmm. think there's a lot to be said for um, you're sort of listening to yourself a lot of the time. And, um, I mean, there are – obviously, there are certain things when you want to s- – certain things you want to get information from from people who know what they're doing for example if you want to set up a solar system yes it would be advisable to to get some information from an expert but other things yeah other things yeah yeah when it comes to the to the nature stuff and and you know how, how you're going to deal with your grass and are you going to throw, throw a bunch of pesticides on it? No, you're probably better off listening to yourself.
0: <laughs> yeah, a good guide that I've used for myself over the last handful of years is just keeping in mind that I should be very wary of advice or guidance from people that I don't envy. And seeing as most of the lifestyles mm. out there are not something I'm trying to emulate or not something that I think I would be happier living, I'm always very skeptical of people who come from that and give advice because that's probably how that got them to that same position
1: that's a really really excellent yeah i love that yeah that's an excellent kind of guideline um for advice yeah if you don't envy the person's lifestyle why would you listen to their advice why would you follow it so true so true completely agree it's really really good um good advice i think
0: yeah i mean it's helped me out um so let's switch gears here a little bit and talk more about the natural building side which I know you're passionate about and write about extensively. So in your previous project you built yourself an earthbag house which was like you said very well suited to your climate and your context and now in such a different setting you've chosen some other methods and in fact you're going to mostly be renovating a pre-existing structure on your land isn't that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. There will be quite a bit of rebuilding involved, though. I mean, the roof will need entirely redoing. But um, yes, it's, 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 it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of, well, two, two of the cabañas are in, in, two of the stone huts are in beautiful condition with still with the, with the pre-existing mud mortar in them, which is such a joy. And that, so they will be easy to, to renovate. I'll just simply have to make a mud mortar and fill in the gaps and, and point it all. But, um, but the big one has been badly restored with concrete. And so I'm going to have to actually take all that concrete out. And, um, and then uh, repoint it with mud mortar the original way. And I may even have to rebuild the stone walls. And I'm not a stone expert. I can do the mud easily and the cob, but I can't. At the moment, I can't do stone. Someone did say to me, well, maybe you can learn. Maybe I will. Um, we'll see. But th- th- there's some, yeah, because the stonework really is, especially if you're not using concrete, the stonework is key. Um, yeah. So, so that's, that's what I'll be doing this time. And then I plan to, Completely redo the interior with cobs. so create cob walls throughout, um, so it will be mud on the inside, an insulating mud. Actually, be- this is, as I said, a temperate climate; it's not freezing climate. So, an insulating cob will do the job, I think, perfectly. And yeah, on on the outside, it will be a renovated stone wall.
0: And so, what do you mean by an insulating cob?
1: Yeah, um, there's a number of ways you can make. Or I should say earth plaster would be... Well, no, some of it will be cob because it will be structural. But anyway, you can can make cob or earth plaster insulating by adding an insulating ingredient to it. Um, A very easy way would be to throw in a lot more straw or throw in sawdust. Um, Other things you can put into it are things like cork, cork granules, and some people have even put things like perlite into it, and they say they say it's worked. Paper pulp is another one. If you if you put an extensive, if you sort of reduce the sand content and and you bulk up the um, the insulating ingredient, whatever you is you choose, that's how you'd make a an insulating a plaster or cob.
0: Yeah, so I've, I've worked with this a little bit in the past, and it's really a matter of how light and fluffy you can get your mixture, the more compact and dense it is, you'll have thermal bridging in between those air pockets, ah. which are essential ah. for the insulation or the insulative properties of the mix, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. I I think so. But again, it's it's because I'm not in a massively cold climate. I don't think it's going to be. I mean, I know from from the when I just had the mud in Turkey, um, the mud house, and it it was it was half a meter of of earth. That's all it was. And I, I remember there even we had we had temperatures dipping sometime to minus seven, but because the temperature didn't stay that cold for very long. What happens is the the earth never gets time to act f- to completely because it's thermal mass. So it takes ages for that cold to go completely through. It never really got totally cold. So it was, it was, It was okay, even though it went to minus seven. It actually felt very snug. And anyway, I'd still say it's still snugger than concrete. And it is even, even earth, solid earth, has a a higher insulative, a higher R value and an insulative value than than normal concrete does. So um, even even though there's a thermal mass, discussion they're going on, it's still better than concrete. It's still even just earth. But um yes, you're absolutely right. If, if I, I agree with you, so it's going to have to have a very, very good mixture of the two to make it actually work. But in my climate, I think I'm probably going to get away with it, even if I didn't it do it perfectly. But if you were in a colder climate, you'd have to, yeah you, know, you know, yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, I really like what you mentioned back there about the fact that even though it got quite cold where you were living previously, it didn't stay at that temperature for very long. And when you're working with a thermal mass material, it takes time for the differential of temperature to actually penetrate through that material. And so if it's just yeah. for a short time, the the larger difference in temperature, it's not going to make it through to the interior of, of your house or your, or your structure, right?
1: exactly that's exactly right and i think so often you get people get quite simplistic about that that thermal mass insulation discussion but it, it if if you're living in Canada, you know, and if if you're or if you're in Greenland or you're somewhere where it's, it's below freezing for months at a time, yeah, uh, thermal mass is not what you want. You want insulation, definitely. But if you're in climate where, I mean, even the UK, you know, even the UK, it's not a warm place, but it doesn't sink below zero for months on end. So um, that's why in Cornwall people people have traditionally been living in cob homes. They're they're not, it's not an insulative material, it's actually thermal mass, but it's still, still pretty snug. Once you've got a fire, if you live in it every day, you're burning a fire in it every day, that fire, that heat is going slowly, slowly through the wall, and the wall actually gets hot, it gets becomes a a kind of heating device in its own right. So while the cold may be trying to penetrate from the outside, your fire is making it through the other way. And so really, if you've got half a meter thick wall, um, it takes yeah. It takes it takes three days, I think. That's what I measured. It takes about three days it to seem to in where I was in Turkey for the cold to get right through. If I wasn't there for three days and didn't heat it, then it was bad news because then it would take another three days to heat it up.
0: Oh yeah, sure. So basically, it takes a charge like a battery, and it takes a while to yeah, charge absolutely. it. But at the same time, it takes a while to to discharge it as well.
1: Absolutely. Yep. Yep. So, if you're in a place where it suddenly dips for two days and then goes back up to to, to sort of two degrees, it, yeah, it's going to be okay.
0: Now, I know you can also manipulate a little bit the way that especially your exterior or internal walls absorb or sort of uh, reflect the heat energy, either in the way that you want it or in order to repel it away. So, like you could put A whitewash on the exterior Mm -hmm. if you're in a very hot area. Um, Like for where we are here, the heat is much more of an issue than the cold. And, you know, probably a lighter color or something reflective, keeping it off the wall so that it doesn't penetrate very deep. Or vice versa, if you're in a colder place and did a, a, like a, you probably don't want black exterior walls. That could be a little severe. But <laughs> but something darker that would absorb the heat well, dark, could yeah, work as well. Dark mud,
1: dark mud, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Have I suppose you there's with an argument
1: all? that it's going to emit it as well. Um, I no, but I, in Turkey it's exactly the same, and in, in most Mediterranean countries they whitewash for that very reason. Even the cars are all white. Actually, they don't. Nobody buys a black car on the Mediterranean. Um, but um, for that exactly the same reason. But but uh, I, I never considered the darkness as a as a kind of heating mechanism. But that is true. It would be absorbing the heat, though. It might be emitting. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, it makes me think too, because there's just so many other ways
0: that you can manipulate the comfort level, the ventilation, the heating of, of an area, not only with, you know, the colors that you use on the plasters or the thermal mass or the insulation that you use in the wall systems, but even how you landscape around the place, whether you put in water features, whether you grow tall trees, what types of trees they are, and this is where you can create an entire little ecosystem and microclimate that fits your lifestyle. That's one of the things I get really excited about.
1: Yeah, it's really, no, you're so right. And that's what I, I managed that on Mud Mountain on that little hot, hot little arid place. I create exactly as you said. I made a pool there under some trees where it, where there was shade. And that pool was always cool. It was always cool. So it, it sent and it absolutely did what you're saying. It created a kind of, um, a movement of air. Um, that, that so, so you'd get this, this, this sort of, Cool breeze coming in from that pool area. It was only a small pool as well, but it did, really did the job. And when that pool when ran dry for any reason, you could definitely tell the difference. It was it was much much hotter. It's absolutely true. And where you're placing your trees as well, if you're in a cold climate and you've got wind, you know you want to, you want that north wind somehow to be to be sort of reduced in, in its power. So so you'd want to I mean to, to put trees a thick thick, thick um, sort of wall of trees. Blocking that north side is is ideal. I mean, I, I prefer to try and get a slope on the north side, which is what I've done this side this this time again. But um, yeah, yeah, e- exactly what you say. You can you can manipulate the um the the landscape just as you said to create this it's this wonderful perfect world. And um, the Iranians used to do it as well with their with their their um their wind chimneys. And oh, those are fascinating, aren't they? Amazing, amazing in the middle of the desert, you know, and and sticking up, throwing up a massive great chimney with with a pool again, a cold pool at the bottom, and and that would create an air conditioning system, an ancient air conditioning system. Yeah, it's really, really interesting when you get into what you can do like that.
0: I mean, these ancient forms of engineering are fascinating because basically we're kind of cheating now by importing a ton of electricity or other energy to run air conditioners or heating units and in that way because it's still artificially cheap we don't have to make good design decisions that work with the ecosystem but like you were mentioning back in Iran and I think similar technology all the way over to Pakistan where they had sort of these steeples coming out of the top of their houses that acted as wind scoops and directed airflow down into the building and through corridors that could ventilate um, that could ventilate the spaces without any imported energy I think that's what you're talking about right?
1: yeah yeah exactly exactly and there's so many things like that um and and sort of when you when you when you get off grid and when you go into that that lifestyle if you're exact observant if you're kind of a bit sensitive and open to to changing your your standard way of doing things it's 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 not just that it's it's good for the environment it's it's fun. There's something really magical about it. I think something fun. You feel like a kid again, you're creating something. The rules are not laid down. Um, there's, there's all sorts of new, new things that you can invent and come up with. It really does stimulate your, your creative drive, I think. And, um, I think that's a lot of the time what people in, in the, in the standard modern life have just lost this, lost this sort of, well there's no meaning to anything because everything's already set up it's all quite boring um there's nowhere you can really sort of you know utilize your creative or inventive powers whereas when you've got this when you when you go off grid and you you've got this world um you can do what you like. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I really like not only that point, but it works perfectly with the illustration that you made earlier about, you know, putting in a pond and maybe an ecosystem of trees as an air conditioning unit instead of buying a machine and paying to maintain it and to fuel it over the lifetime. Even if it achieves the same sort of comfort level or temperature in your interior space, what you're missing out on is the water feature outside for a tranquil place to go and and sit and, and watch your land, or the shade from the tree and possibly giving fruit or some other byproduct from that plant. Um, like, which, exactly. which of those would you rather The have?
1: life would be in the pond. <laughs> exactly. I know. An ugly an ugly white plastic. Yeah, exactly. Right. To say just... nothing of attracting <laughs> <beautiful> native <laughs> species.
0: And, yeah, it's night yeah, and day no, difference. Even if you may be achieving the same interior comfort level. Yep. inside you're missing out on so many of the benefits of having a more complex and resilient ecosystem that that comes along with uh, thinking outside of just importation of energy and use of machinery to achieve a goal.
1: Well, and we haven't even touched on the fact that once you've got that that air conditioning machine, you've then actually got to go and work to pay for it, and work to pay for somebody to repair of it when course. it goes wrong. Yeah. Um, and you know you have to do some soul destroying job to do that, whereas you your own pool. The, the job itself is fun, keeps you fit. <laughs> you don't need to pay to go to a gym because you're already doing that. Um, and you have, as you said, a beautiful living um, feature. Uh, yes, it's weird. Yeah, there's, yeah, I think once you've done it, there's no turning back, is I there? I mean, it's such a good <laughs>
0: illustration of holistic solutions rather than sort of band-aid or yeah. symptomatic ones, right?
1: Yeah, 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 definitely. So let's go
0: back a, a little bit now to talk about uh, the plaster's that we had mentioned earlier. I know you write a lot about this and you've done a ton of experimentation on your own. One of the things that sort of, we always kind of come back to is the difference between earth-based plasters and lime-based plasters, and the possibility Ah, of mixing the two. (laughs) Now this is something that I'm constantly tinkering with because we have (laughs) such a good source uh, for both slaked and unslaked lime here. Can you talk a little bit right. about your own experiences with those two and what each one is better for than the other?
1: Yeah, it's um oh it's 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 really very very individual. I think it becomes it becomes it's you, your land, your climate. And um you've really got to know what each material does. In order to sort of, you become a bit of a chemist or or an alchemist even. Um, you've got to know what each bit does to really um, to, to sort of play effectively. And I didn't know in the beginning, and I wasn't really getting the right answers from from um, the internet. So uh, it took me. It really did took took me almost two years to get my plaster right, but but in Turkey. And um, but I did in the end. And I and I sort of in the process, I re- I learned. What everything was doing and so your clay if you've got if you're using clay in your plaster your clay is your your bonding mix it's like your glue but the the thing what clay is good for and bad for is (laughs) that it that it expands when it gets wet and it shrinks back when it gets dry so if you're in a climate if you're in a very dry climate if you're in the desert um, that's not going to matter very much. You can use just clay and sand or clay and straw, and you might get away with that because you're, you, it's never going to have an opportunity to expand and contract. It's always going to be pretty much always in the contracted, um, state. But, uh, if you get to, to somewhere like where I was in Turkey, where it's incredibly arid in the summer, and then you get the same rainfall as England, but in three months in the winter. Then you've got a, an extreme situation, and your that that simple clay sand straw mixture cannot cope with it. Um, you get you get massive. What you see typically in that situation is massive cracks, cracking appearing, and that's because the the clay expands and contracts, and it and um, and yeah, it's it's that's what's going on. When it contracts back again, it cracks. So the only way we found to, to cope with that was to add a bit of lime. Now, lime um, is is a drying out material, so, it, so it, it sort of mitigates the moisture problem in the plaster. That's why the lime re- works really well if you're in a wet climate. And they've actually, I'm looking at my cabañas here, these ancient cabañas, In the beginning, I thought it was just mud in the mortar, and it's not. It's mud and lime. So even from quite a while back, they must have been using that lime for the same reason. Uh, They're they're doing it here as well. Um, But people often get confused because uh, then they think when you're, you're saying add a bit of lime into your earth plaster, they get confused between that and lime plaster, which is something else. So lime plaster is just when you're adding your lime and your sand and maybe a pozzolan if, if you want to really harden it up, but lime and sand mixing it together. And then you get something which is quite cementitious, like, like concrete. Um, and that's quite a that's a hard that will create a hard brittle surface whereas a clay plaster which would be typically clay sand and straw is a much softer more flexible plaster and when you add a bit of lime into your clay or earth plaster you're creating something slightly in the middle
0: yeah, that's really well explained. I'm glad that you went over some of the characteristics and the properties of each one. Now, I've had my own experiences both doing lime as mortar, as plaster, and most recently, we've uh, finished infilling the walls on the main house here at the Abundant Edge Farm, and we're doing what is called locally bajareque, or wattle and dab, and we've been infilling all of the panels with local clay soil, and Lime that we slaked ourselves and we we slaked it in the pits with the clay and then let it sit for about four days, remixing it and hydrating it enough so that it would not continue to absorb too much moisture as we put it in the walls and then let it dry. And so the reason for doing you're, that is you, not you, so much you for the stability. Do, you always do a
1: very good job. <laughs> <laughs> you always do a really good job, you know? You're, just, you're way more particular than I am, but yeah, it sounds good.
0: <laughs> well, so what i found is that when you slake your own lime, if you don't allow it to, yeah. to rehydrate sufficiently and start to use it before, I, I think the minimum that they've told us around here is four days. But... W- The longer that you leave it, the higher quality it will be because it's such a fine material. And then because it has so much surface area, it can drink up an incredible amount of moisture. And if it hasn't finished drinking up all of that moisture before you start to work with it, it'll continue to do it after it's been set, either as a plaster or as a mortar, and it'll expand and start to crumble and crack. And I've seen this happen with other people Absolutely who right. didn't hydrate their lime for long enough. So I think though we did the minimum, it's been working out pretty well for us. And the reason that we added lime into the infill for the walls is that it helped to reduce the cracking and the shrinking, which the yeah. the local clay soil that we have here does quite a bit of and can actually yeah. lose its form and unstick itself from the framing a little bit so we had a yeah. good pretty good success rate with i mean there's quite a lot of cosmetic cracks but it has nothing to do with uh, the structural integrity it's just you know that's naturally what happens
1: yeah 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 no that's that's i slaked mine for two weeks before i did it but when in the one in turkey yeah yeah and um yeah it's absolutely true because if you just throw it in straight in just what you said, it's going to – it is incredibly – and when you work with lime, it becomes really obvious how drying it is. Even working with it, I used to feel thirsty every minute because it really, really does suck in every drop of moisture. And that's, that's why it's excellent in a wet climate because it, that's what it does – even while it's sitting in the wall, it's still reabsorbing moisture from the air all the time, and it, it creates a beautiful dry sort of, you know, this this. You don't get this mouldy, damp atmosphere. It really does create a which which classically concrete creates, you know. Um, it's it's this this wonderful dry uh, interior that it creates when you do that. So yeah, yeah, I agree.
0: Well, one of the other intricacies that I've known about since I started working with it is that you want it to dry once you once you have it set, either as a mortar or a plaster, as slowly as possible. And Sorry, they recommend yeah, one yeah, to two yeah. weeks, right?
1: Yeah, and and it's I went to even even though mine was a an earth plaster mixed with a bit of lime like yours, I um I would wet it. I wetted it every day for a week at least
0: mm. and
1: um yeah, yeah especially in your if, dry if you're in a climate, wet climate. Yeah, exactly. If you're in a wet climate, like like in, I don't think they they really bother in the UK because it's always damp, isn't it? Yeah. So, <laughs> so the the climate's doing the job for them. But I'm um, in Turkey. You really had to take care, and if you didn't, it was obvious. It's just what you said. It would crack immediately because it would get get so dried well, it out. It also that, gets yeah. powdery. Exactly. Absolutely. You yeah. brush up against yeah. it,
0: and you left with like a chalk stain on your shoulder or something.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: See, that's actually yeah. one of the reasons why I tend not to mix the two. So it works pretty well for this infill in our wall um, to prevent the cracking. But in my experience, mixing mud and lime together for plasters has always resulted in kind of a powdery, chalky finish that for me is not conducive to what I want, especially for interiors. Have you had trouble with that yourself? I think
1: Yes, I think, um, I think, uh, what was I going to say there? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, there's certain things that you can add. I mean, yes, definitely. My, my interior was chalky. It did create a chalky interior. There was just no other way of getting the, the plaster to adhere and to stick properly without the lime in it because, because of the climate. Mm. Um, However, so, so yeah, that for me it was, and, and a lot of people are noting the same thing. Um, so for me it was about that. And uh, I agree that. And in this this house, I shall try and do the interior because the clay here is wonderful, and because it's always damp, I'm not getting this dry wet dry wet thing. I'm going to try the interior without without putting the lime in. Although, as I said, the um the original building does have the lime in it, <laughs> mm. so they they obviously deemed it deemed it worthy of putting lime in for that reason. But anyway, I should give it a try and see what happens um but for that reason but you there are certain things you can do to well first of all if you were going to lime wash your interior anyway which is what a lot of people do um that sort of solves that problem for you I mean, you can add things into the lime wash for example uh you can add a uh, casein into it or <clears throat> some people just put the skimmed milk in salt all these things stop that chalkiness that from happening, stop the lime from from um, becoming dusty.
0: I do have one funny um, story though people- about the salt. Yeah, yeah, sorry. No no no, I just
1: <laughs> Oh yeah, what happened. A
0: little cautionary tale. <laughs> I a tried cautionary to mix tale. Yeah, so I tried to mix rock salt in <laughs> with um with a earthen plaster that I was doing in Senegal, but I didn't let the the grains of salt dissolve first, and I assumed that they would just dissolve while I was mixing the plaster. That there was enough moisture in there, but they didn't, and so I ended up with like this Dalmatian spotted <laughs> plaster on on a guest house that I did in Senegal, and like like in theory that would have worked. What did you do about fine. it? <laughs> I ended up. I literally ended up going through because you could see where the. The little grains were, even though they were covered by plaster, because they held sort of a halo of moisture around them, and the, the finish was totally spotted. And so I had to go in and with like a with a flathead <laughs> yeah. screwdriver and individually <laughs> dig out all of these grains of salt no, and redig oh, the thing. Gosh. Oh, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> oh gosh! So make sure that your salt is dissolved Bushy or of a very yes. small grain size before you put it into your mix. Just from experience.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Yeah, all of those
0: (laughs) other binders and and additives, like you mentioned, uh, usually have the effect of either reducing the powdering, putting in sort of a sealing, somewhat water resistant coat. I mean, I've worked with everything from uh, different types of manure to casein, to wheat paste, Mm -hmm. to oils, But one thing that I've noticed about oils, and I'm not sure if you've found this yourself or if you've worked with it this way, once you oil finish a plaster and it chips, you never can quite patch it correctly again. For some reason, either the oil kind of ages or stains at a different rate. And so if you do a patch on an oiled plaster, you'll always notice the difference. That's just been my experience.
1: Ah, that's that's yeah, that's well worth noting. No, I've never heard that before, and I haven't experienced it. So but I either um,
0: take I really good I care of it.
1: St- I haven't been with my structures long enough to.
0: <laughs> no, I <haven't>, like even <laughs> on short term because we that. did a. So, we did yeah. a stove with a with an oil finish on it once and it chipped a few times. We tried to uh to patch it up and it just, you know, it never quite matches the same. And for someone who's rather particular about symmetry and matching and having things even, <laughs> like I'm a little neurotic about that stuff. It's worth knowing going ahead. <laughs> You'll never quite get it right.
1: <laughs> well, there's I I'm, I'm a bit uh, to be honest like if, for plastering a house, I'm a, always a bit wary of um of, of oiling it really because it's sort of killing the breathability of it again so if you can get away with not oiling it um why oil it <laughs> would be my would be my sort of feeling about it but there's certain i'm going to try some some oiling of for example i'm going to try making i saw it done and i want to copy it as to make it make a um a cob tub and so then I will oil it and give it a go and see mm-hmm. what happens when I just leave it outside. Yeah. But for a house, it, wouldn't you say it's going to kill kill the breathability as soon as you're sticking sort of a, a lime... Uh, sorry, a, a, a linseed oil wrap over it. Isn't it a bit like cellophane it?
0: You know, I'm sure that it has an effect on the breathability, but I can't imagine that it cuts it off entirely. Um, just oh, given, sorry. like, experience from doing it with floors you know, you you put on a couple of layers and it's definitely put on thicker than perhaps you would do on a wall. And the first couple of layers are mixed in with some sort of thinner, either a citric thinner or turpentine or something so that it penetrates deeper. But I think that the aggregate in any plaster would probably be enough surface area that you wouldn't get like a perfect seal on it. Now, I'm sure it'd be different if you did a wax coat over the top. I'm sure that would right. kill the breathability. But I think linseed on its own, especially if it's applied with some sort of thinner, would probably still maintain enough breathability that you wouldn't end up with um, like a, a pure vapor barrier.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: But I would imagine the wax would do well, that. Yeah. But I've only ever used <laughs> wax on a floor. I've never waxed a wall.
1: Yeah. no. No. Yes yeah, so
0: but so yeah. there's uh, it, it gets tricky because uh, some of these react differently depending on the substrates that you put them on as well so especially oh. much more with lime because it yes. doesn't have a chemical yes. bonding to clay you have to put in some sort of tooth or or some texture so that there's a mechanical bond yeah. that keeps it uh, stuck to the wall I keep trying to say things in Spanish it's it's throwing me off <laughs> <laughs> some of these words come to me faster in Spanish now than they do English I was like it doesn't peg out correctly to the wall anyway
1: <laughs> no no got It what what has it's quite been nice and visual actually
0: think, yeah, yeah yeah
1: what um, has been your experience with, <laughs> with
0: sort of prepping a wall to make sure that it adheres correctly to the final finish that you want
1: yeah, every every single substrate is different. It, this is this is the thing. And so, for example, if you're doing earth bag, that's a whole different ball game. Yeah, this um, is what I want to know because I've
0: not worked with earth bags. Yeah,
1: or so. yeah, with earth bag a totally different ball game. And it's you, you're not you. you yeah, works, you, what you're really doing, how you plaster it. Normally, if you're not using, let's move away from lime for the moment. Let's let's yeah, pretend yeah. it's it's um, maybe a a lovely dry climate with clay plaster and nothing else. Then you, what you've got to do is is because because where the bags are you've got little gaps sort of in the where the corners of the bags are that sort of recede into the wall and first of all you need to create anchors with your with your plaster so you lob sort of quite hefty balls of of um plaster into all the gaps and so it looks the right mess in the beginning, but, but it's, that's how it should be. And so the, you don't smooth anything. You don't, you don't, um, could work anything at that point. You're just trying to fill the gaps and get, get that, that plaster lodged between the gaps to create anchors which then do the pegging job that you were talking about, um, which then hold when you come to your second layer, you wait for them to dry and then they act as anchors for your second layer. And yeah. again, yeah, always with plaster, you, you can not you can never smooth it until you get to the last layer. Um, you It always needs a rough, wet surface to cling to. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so that's how you do earth bag. Uh, if you've got straw bale, then it's a different thing again because you've got a different problem there. It's dryness is your issue with straw mm. bale. So, so you're going to want to wet the bales or create a weep. Some people do it with a wheat paste they put on mm. or create a clay slip. Put that on and that's gonna be your bonding the way you bond your plaster to your bale so that there that, that's a different issue. Um with stone I think it, it, it it's it depends on your stone actually but it's it's a bit like the um if if you're not leaving it a stone finish and you're so you're not, not just pointing it, but you actually want to plaster the interior it's gonna be like earth bag. You're gonna throw it in the gaps create um, create anchors and then use those to spread your plaster across across the wall. Mm. Uh, what other substrates have we got? got? Well, I did
0: a similar other- thing for um, <laughs> yeah. for ram tires in a foundation. So for the interior ah. of the house, we actually did a clay plaster right against the the tires. And obviously, there are big voids yeah. in between those. And actually, it was one of the most fun times I had because we just stood further away from the wall and underhand pitched it like playing softball <laughs> with ah, big, Cobb yeah. <laughs>
1: kind
0: of just like smacking it right into those voids in between the tires. It was a great time.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's, yeah, yeah, that's
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd recommend anybody try that out. <laughs> it's very satisfying. <laughs> so,
1: I mean, now- it is. It is actually possible, even to to we've we've had people do it. Um, even to plaster things, even non natural surfaces is possible. But you need then you need a special primer to do it. Um, you can plaster onto to drywall, for example. It, it's it's possible. We you need you need to get a decent primer. You could some people have done it with wheat paste and sand and clay mixed together mm-hmm. and used that as a primer. Or you can buy a primer um that does that job from from a, a natural building. Supplier, but yeah, that is also possible.
0: I, in fact, I really recommend that. Um, even if you don't have earth and walls and want some of the breathability and the other health benefits yeah. of having clay inside of your house, surprisingly, small uh, layers or, or amounts of plaster can actually have a huge benefit of, especially humidity regulation for interior spaces. Yes, and even if you're just yes. doing it over drywall or um, or even concrete. Uh, concrete I've always yeah. found to be very easy, You can it, it'll take a, a clay plaster immediately because of all the pores in, in the block or in, in the surface. Um, but what I've heard recommended in a couple of books if you're going to be going onto drywall is that you use a waterproof primer just because the moisture content from the clay and usually taking a little bit longer to dry can start to degrade the paper that comes over the drywall uh, uh. and that can start to fall off. So Makes sense. I mean, I've done yep. it without. Uh, in fact, I had a commercial job in Guatemala City where I was doing an, an adobe plaster over drywall and it stuck, it, it, went, uh, it went over really well. Um, and I didn't notice any problems from that, but I could definitely see that, especially uh, with thicker plasters or with slower dry times, depending on your ventilation, uh, putting a more waterproof layer in between the two could help a lot.
1: Yeah, if you're, you're in a dry climate, I, I, I think so. <laughs> so you I think know, if you're in an arid really. climate, again, you're not really, okay, no, okay. No, our, our, yeah.
0: our rainy season is severe. We get up to, I mean, oh, here in the right, highlands, yeah. we get to about two meters of rainfall a year.
1: Okay. So it's actually really okay. severe, but yeah. it's not nearly yeah. as humid as
0: down by the coast, which uh, can get up to two and a half to three meters a year.
1: Right, right. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it's pretty varied. That's why you needed the lime, then, is in, the, in the, um, makes sense in the plaster. Yeah. Well, yeah. and also
0: just really big yeah. overhangs on the windows, or not on the windows, yeah. but on the, on the, uh, the or the ceiling
1: <laughs> yeah because because if you're getting all that in a, in a yeah, yeah in one season that's yeah it's like, yeah. Tur- it's and like it all comes tur- within it's about it's a six month period yeah absolutely <laughs> plus the risk of hurricanes too so yeah. we've had to put a lot of bracing
0: yep. into the framing uh, especially for the roof um yeah but so kind of along is it the same well? top- is it good Oh, it's going phenomenally, but we've also had a very dry, rainy season so far this year. We haven't had any major storms, which is fantastic because right. I don't have windows on this place yet. <laughs> I'm really not sure what I would so the, do if a test, big storm came The test came. is still to come. The, st- the test is still to come. I'm really hoping it doesn't come this year because I know I'll be more prepared for it next season. Um but, you know, I left huge spaces for windows because it's worth it. We have such good views of the lake and it's sunny and beautiful most of the year. Even during the rainy season, we get nice uh, sunny, dry mornings. It usually doesn't start to rain until the afternoon and the night and then it absolutely chucks it down. Uh, so like right now, I'm looking out the window of my office and it's perfectly sunny and gorgeous. There's not even any wind at the moment. So, you know, even the rainy season is not that bad. It's just like these intense yeah. moments of, of severe weather
1: yeah 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 sounds sounds very much like it was in turkey you just you, yeah even the rain the rainy season was was pretty pleasant but when it rained you knew about it and yeah. Yeah, and you definitely Man, wanted windows
0: <laughs> yeah we should definitely be submitting this podcast episode to the tourism boards of the countries that we're talking about So, <laughs> was like yeah come and move to guatemala go move to turkey northern spain is the best i want some kickbacks <laughs> Okay, so along a similar line, we've talked a lot about the ways of protecting the uh, exterior of your walls, but you're in a fantastic situation where you're working with uh, pre-existing homes that actually have earth and mortar in between the stonework. And this is something that I haven't worked with a whole lot, though I have seen examples in some of the old colonial structures in some of the older towns uh, here in Guatemala. Could you tell me a little bit about uh, the different plastering, or, or, sorry, the mortaring recipes that you've come across, and what you're planning to do for your own renovations.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, there's, the, this it's really very much like an earth plaster. Um, it's, the, it's the same, and really, if you, if you know which earth plaster you're going to use in your earth plaster is more difficult because, because you, you don't want that when you're p- applying to a wall, you don't want that cracking, and you, do, you don't want it to fall off. So it's sort of going. Earth plaster is going um vertically onto a onto a substrate, so it's got a, a dip, difficult job to do, whereas mortar mortar all it doesn't have the same. St- issue, um, so you're not too worried if it's cracking, what you what you want it to do is is hold so if you know what your earth plaster is, you can use exactly the same in your climate, for your area I would use exactly the same recipe slightly tweak it a bit I'd add a little bit more sand to it perhaps a little bit more lime um, to give it some strength but uh, the recipes I've come across are you, you can have just clay and sand if you've got excellent clay um, and you're in a pretty dry climate again. You so can what just do you mean by excellent clay in, in this context? Yeah, well so some clays like in Turkey, where I was in Turkey, it was not great clay. So it it was it, and it, it was very strange because some people and I haven't had this problem yet, but I might not have come to the right clay, you see. But some people have issues with mixing the lime and the clay and say it's terrible. That it that it it, it turns it, it it sort of it ruins the clay and so i've never experienced that but i have maybe haven't come across that kind of clay so and i'm not i'm I'm not i don't even know i have no idea of the name uh if if it has a special name but i think not i think it's just local dirt is different local clay is different from place to place and what i'm noticing here is it's very very malleable it's like chewing gum you know it's you just put it in your hand and it's sort of it's just just yeah, it's exactly like chewing gum. Whereas in Turkey, it really wasn't like that at all. It was, um, it was a lower quality clay that we were using, but it worked very well with lime. It, it was, it was mm. a dustier clay. The clay in itself was dusty. You know, the, the, it was like that was the, that was the character of the landscape. And, um, and here it's, it's really a much more malleable clay. And I use in the UK when I've, I use clay it was it was a different again and that the clay that i used in an area called east anglia which is um also uh, traditionally a wattle and daub and uh area that clay again was astounding you didn't need to mix lime with that even in england um so it was just straw it was straw and i and it was i put a very rough mixture together with straw sand and this clay and it it, it was solid it was absolutely solid it was wonderful so that that's what i mean Some some clays just just set beautifully. They don't seem to need much adding to them. Um, they're very malleable and they they don't they're not dusty and they don't crack very much when they dry. Some clays, some clays just seem to act really well. That that's what I mean. So if if you have a have a really good malleable strong kind of clay like that and you mix it with with sand that could be enough for your mortar again it depends on your stonework because you can have a house built with dry stone without any mortar at all if the stonework's brilliant um then all your all your mortar is doing is filling in the gaps so the insects don't go in and so that the air isn't blowing in it has a different purpose it's not really structural but uh, if you want it to be more structural structural then sand you're going to be clay, clay sand you can put straw in it as well and you can put lime in it some people only do mortars in the uk there's a lot of houses that are renovated with just lime mortar which is be lime a pozzolan and sand for example so it's very much it's the same as earth plaster or lime plaster really but um the only difference i would say is that it's going to be less watery it's going to be much more stodgy your mixture
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's something we've been experimenting with around here. In fact, we're working on it today. We're building the uh, interior terrace wall for our animal pen with lime mortar and and the stone that we have on site. And we've also been doing the same thing for the interior uh, flooring for the house. Because we have access to these fantastic slate stones that come from the valley right next to us. And most people put them together with a cement mortar just because it, it dries faster and it tends to be a little bit stronger. Um, but going back to the way that we mixed it, you know, hydrating the lime for a longer period of time. And then, of course, we had to not walk on this floor with the lime mortar in between the stones for a longer period of time because it takes longer to set. But other than that, it's been working out phenomenally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Lime, yeah, what you've made is really a limecrete. Um, yeah, which which in the UK as well, they use a, they use limecrete in in old buildings. You have to repair them with limecrete. You're not allowed to do it with concrete. So you'd have limecrete. You can even buy limecrete slabs already made there. Oh, um, cool. That's that's already done for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. There's there's many many different <laughs> many different ways.
0: So within that, within mortaring uh, stonework with earth. What is preventing it from eroding, or is it still kind of at risk and need needing uh, other protections?
1: Well, it's, it's yeah. Again, it's it's like a plaster. It's like a plaster, so it will erode. Over you can see with this. I mean, I'm 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 thinking that when the plaster that I'm looking at, I'm touching it right now. <laughs> um, it's got to be fifty years old, and um, so of course it has eroded. It, it's it's what happens is it slides it sort of slides out from the. From the uh, from the rocks, and that's that's when you do pointing. You you would, and you can even use a gun to. You can fill up a gun and, and insert it. You know, insert the plaster into the gaps. Um, that's how they would do it with uh, when they were restoring a lot of the time. They have a kind of a, a, like a silicon gun, you know, and they just fill ah, sure. it up with with the mortar and squeeze it into the gaps, which is probably what I will do in this case. Um, so yeah, it does, but not it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean doesn't degrade particularly quickly, you know, and you're not going to be doing that every year. I'd say you'd be doing that every sort of five to ten years, I hope.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's reasonable. I think uh, yeah. people look at the difference between maintenance on conventional or industrial fixes to things or, or on machinery And they think, oh, well, you know, either you pay a technician to do it or you just replace the thing. And potentially you're doing more maintenance over a shorter period of time on these natural fixes, but the materials are on hand. The work is not toxic and is oftentimes a lot of fun. And if you stay on top of the maintenance, it's extremely long lasting. I mean, even with a lot of negligence, there are tons of earthen buildings and Uh, natural structures all over the world that have survived for a really long time.
1: Yeah, I I, I never understand the maintenance thing because I don't think it really does need that much maintenance. I mean, whatever you do, whichever type of building you build... Whether you build it with toxic materials or not, it needs maintenance. Um, that you can't get away without doing maintenance. Whether it's painting your walls, or you know they get grubby, or uh, it, it's you're going to have to maintain something. And as you quite rightly pointed out, the thing is when it's when it's a natural build, is it doesn't really feel like doing maintenance to a normal house. That's the trouble is people go in with their idea of what they already know about maintenance from their from their pre-existing box concrete box thing so they're going in thinking oh maintenance I don't feel like that about maintenance I'm going around looking and thinking oh there's a bit of a crack there I think I'll make a nice sculpture on it you see nice. I'm just it just doesn't it doesn't kind of have that same It's not not the same thing. It's not like an oof job. As you said, it's a fun job. It's a job that you're using beautiful materials. You're experimenting all the time. And every time you maintain, you don't really just maintain. You might actually up braid something or you might create something new Uh, it's an opportunity really whereas you don't have that creative opportunity with your standard concrete box Um, that's why maintenance is dull and boring because all you're doing is covering up somebody else's job really so um yeah, it's, to me, they're just not the same thing, for one thing. And two, I just don't think... I didn't find with the earthbag house... I was actually amazed at how little maintenance was required. There was one wall, um, exterior wall, which uh, only one side which used to get hit by the rain a lot. And I I made a mistake. My overhangs weren't long enough. If I'd made longer, longer overhangs, I probably wouldn't have even had that job to do. But that side of the building every year that would need more, that would need like a, a kind of touch-up of plaster. But how long did that take me? Half a day? You know, half a day just to touch that up. And as I said, actually, then I got creative with it and put my mosaic all over it. And then the mosaic didn't need any kind of um, a maintenance at all because that was written in the plaster. But yeah, maintenance, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think...
0: No, I it's think you made terrible. some some great points. And like, <laughs> if you've taken control of rebuilding or renovating or even building from scratch your own structure, using materials locally sourced, um, getting involved with the process, you're right. It doesn't feel like, okay, now we've got to fix something. When you're connected to your living environment like that, it it's much more of a change in lifestyle rather than an adoption of of extra maintenance or other jobs. Could you talk a little bit about how living closer and in more control of your environment, your your structural environment, your natural environment around you, has sort of transformed your life and given you a new perspective on things?
1: Yeah, it. I, yeah, it's. I, I think it's huge. I think it's so huge that the difference between this this way of living and the standard way of living that that is it, sometimes I feel it's quite hard to communicate it because people. It's a bit like trying to explain a, a, an alien colour to somebody who's never seen it. So the colour mm. I don't know. i explain ultraviolet to somebody who, who who to somebody who can't see it, for example. Um, it it's it's so different, and so everything. All the th- we always go into everything with a framework in our mind of what we already know, and which is what I was meaning about the maintenance thing. But everything's like that, so we have have, a, have an idea life now, and so obviously it's going to be some kind of modification of this. Actually, no, it's it's something utterly different. And when you, when you take that lifestyle on board and to do it successfully, really, because not everybody does have a good time. Some people really don't have a good time and give up. But people who really embrace it and it, have a transformation with it and really enjoy it are the people who let that old mentality go and just sit with the, the land, actually, first. Sit with nature because you are in nature. If you're doing this, There's no way you can be avoiding nature. There's no way you can be actually controlling it either, as you soon learn. You are with it. You have to learn to live and participate with it rather than going with this attitude of, I am going to control it. And the sooner you grasp that, the better. Because in fact, what you start to realize is, as I said before, your land is not a backdrop that you, the important person, comes on and a stage that that you're performing on. It's it's actually a living, full of living entities. It is a living entity, and it responds to you and adapts to you, and you adapt to it. So there's going to be a continual exchange going on, a continual change going on between you and the land itself. So how it changes you is that first of all you you stop. Trying to control everything. I think, um, every, I think pretty much everybody who, who does this realizes it quite quickly because you can't, the weather, you can't, you sort of have a, a sense of surrender to it. So, and then you start to trust because you can't control it, but somehow you're still okay. You, a, a great sense of trust arises, which people who have been disconnected from. Um, from from the natural world have lost and it actually reduces your anxiety a lot of the time because the issues you' are dealing with are very um, they're, they're they're mo- they're in the moment. So you have an issue. You're cold. You need to cut firewood, so you go and cut firewood. Problem solved. You're warm. Kind of thing. Everything's like this. You need you need some water. You go to the stream. You fill it up. These are your issues. You haven't got these imaginary issues that are created by by sort of the media or by by the system itself, which which creates all sorts of sort of little worries. Like um, uh, parking tickets and and sort of all sorts of niggling little worries that that you don't have any of those. So all those things, those anxieties that you thought were sort of very important to you, suddenly you don't have them. They're not there. So you're left with this incredible sense of freedom and trust. This trust. And a sense of participation. I felt personally, and I don't don't know how how it works for you because you're you're in a community, so it's a bit different. But I really felt that it, it's. Um, I never really felt alone because I suddenly started to realise there were connections where I hadn't seen any connections before, and the, once I'd seen those connections, I felt very, were just very well. I just didn't feel feel alone actually, and very um. Well, everything felt very meaningful instead of meaningless. Everything has an importance. It, uh, it could be a very simple importance like my survival, but it could also be that um, I've got I've got a kind of responsibility to the land, and it has a responsibility to me. That kind of sensation arises, and it it sort of reinvigorates your sense of magic um, and your sense of, of meaning. Yeah, that's that's how I feel about it.
0: <laughs> mm, no, I completely agree. I've had many of the same observations uh, in various different places because I've been traveling around and living either off grid or in sometimes intentional communities um, in in a lot of different environments over about thirteen years of travel. So, depending on where you are, your interactions and your sense of control can be skewed, right? But you know, even though now we live very close yeah. in with nature on our small homesteading farm here in Guatemala, like you said, there's still a bit of a difference in in context because we're doing it as a group. And I can't recommend enough to people to take on the challenge of doing things more in collaboration. It is more difficult to deal with those human structures and interactions that, you know most of the time don't go your way and you really have to learn to compromise and be less selfless for the benefit of the group. But it's a huge exercise in in maturity and in selflessness, which I mean, I am I think I'm much more of the personality of your type of lifestyle where I just get a small plot, be by myself, no neighbors. Um, I, I tend towards the, the less social side. Um, but this has been really good to kind of keep me from becoming too much of a hermit and realizing that it's not all about me and that the interactions and the, uh, the uh, ability to, to get things done, because, you know, we have very large ambitions for what we're trying to do with not only our land, but for the business as well and helping other people going along towards regenerative lifestyles. It would either happen much slower or not at all without the help and support that I have from this amazing team that we've got, uh. Both in on the land and the business here, as well as the support from the community and our friends around.
1: That's that's great to hear. That I mean, you've 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 chosen. I think you've you've chosen. I, I did. I I mean, I wrote about you and, and I said you. You know, you're one of the success stories because because you know there are quite a few <laughs> few who fail. You've you've chosen. I, you must have chosen a good team, really, a good um, like minded team, and that ability because it, it's quite tricky that ability to um yeah uh, to not yeah to have to lead the show and to um to compromise which is what you, you have to do when you're in a group
0: yeah, yeah. not really
1: sure. easy, easy at all no. but but there's pros and cons to both as you said you get you get stuff done it's true i mean if somebody comes to help here yeah, you know you get i always think when there's an extra pair of hands you actually get three times the work done um than you do when there's just oh, one definitely. of you yeah. <clears throat>
0: There's sort of a compounding yeah, return yeah, of working yeah. in collaboration for sure.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, okay. definitely.
0: So before I let you go here, I would love to hear a little bit more about the new book that you've just put out and a little bit about the the courses that you offer in the community, especially online and through Facebook groups that you've helped to to form around these these questions and this knowledge of natural building and regenerative living.
1: Yeah, I suppose that's where my my collaboration comes in, isn't it? I I am um, yeah. So so uh, I feel I feel my collaboration and my my participation element really does come through online for me. And um and so yeah, I, I started a uh, that the, it's been going very well. And and an earth plaster course which did very well, an online earth plaster course. And I did actually did did that because. I really struggled. When you're out in the sticks, uh, um, I really struggled to get the right information about that and and I needed – I couldn't buy books. There are lots of beautiful books out there. But, hey, if you happen to live in a place where, where Amazon don't deliver to, then um, you're, you're in a bit of a muddle. And so <clears> I, <agree>. I really <laughs> wanted to, to create a, a core cool, – yeah, I really want – I was really, really thought about, about the pe- people. And I have a, uh, the audience or the group, the collaboration that I'm in is very – Worldwide, it's not just, just Europe or it's not just the US, you know, it's, it's worldwide. It's people in India and Nepal and Africa. And I, having lived in Turkey, I know their issues and you, you obviously do too, you know, from, from your travels. It, it's just, so I really wanted to create that, a situation where people from anywhere could, could benefit and could access that information so that was the course and that did very well and that's still doing very well and still still working well and then and and I actually um had last year I was I really thought I was going to have to to shut the mud home down because it was becoming completely unsustainable to run it and so I started a patreon uh, often it really was the best thing, thing I did. Um, I really enjoy that the, the Patreon crowd. And I've, so I've got a little Facebook group with that crowd where, um, <clears throat> where people can get proper attention from me. Cause there are a lot of public forums out there. It's not that there isn't information or isn't places, but there is a difference between having a small group of people with somebody who's responsible and, and actually, you know, really takes takes an interest in your project and helps you through it as opposed to just throwing your question online and um and it gets a bit of a free for all and you get 101 different especially with earth plaster which is so so location dependent you get 101 different Opinions coming in and you end can often end up feeling more confused than you started off with. So that's why I started that Facebook group often and, um, of which you are thankfully a a very, a very useful and, um, member of. So, um, that's, yeah. And I'm, I'm pleased with that as well. And it also gives me lots of great ideas for posts that it makes me understand what people are having problems with. Um, so then I can write a post about that, which is a public post, which is, um, which I really enjoy. So that's the virtual aspect. And then, and there's my book. Yeah. Which is exactly covers a lot of things that we've just talked about, about the reconnecting with the, the land, dirt, which it's called. It's, um, it's actually covers, it's funny because it's mirroring very much what I, I'm now in exactly the same position, although not, but, um, the first six months that I was on my land in Turkey, I really didn't have a clue. And I moved down there. I, I moved there because I was broke. I'd run out of money and I was burned out and I couldn't work anymore. And so I just said I was going to camp on my land till I sorted my head out. And within within weeks, the the, the whole experience changed me completely um, and turned me into the person I had to so that book really covers (laughs) covers that that time of my life when really I was reconnecting with what I'd call our our kind of our wild side which most of us lose at some point and um and it's a tragedy that we lose it because it is actually we we possess so many more powers so many more abilities than we realize, and I think they're all hidden within us. And it's not until you're, well, for me at least, it wasn't until I was pushed into that situation of a lot of solitude in in nature like that that it began to, to awaken in me, and I began to feel things and see things that I hadn't really seen or felt before. And it gave me a sense of meaning and belonging, which, um, which I have never lost. I haven't lost it. Even in my my darker darker moments on the road, I haven't lost it. And so, yeah. And so that's what that book is about, Dirt Witch. It's about um, reconnecting with the wild side, with nature, and what happened to me when I was in those six months alone in a tent with the snakes and the scorpions.
0: <laughs> it's an amazing story. And I encourage anybody listening to check out the book. Tell them uh, how they can find you online, interact with you, and and find your book as well.
1: Yeah, uh, just go to www.themudhome.com. Everything is on there. I've got uh, two free natural building courses on there uh, that you can sign up for. One is earth plaster and one is uh, earth bag building. So definitely worth signing up for those. They've, you get quite a long email course that follows um about both those two topics and you can see all my information about my books and anything else and facebook groups and anything else is on there www.themudhome.com
0: marvelous atulia thank you so much for taking the time to be with us again here today i always have a good time chatting with you and catching up and uh thank you so much for sharing your experiences (laughs) and such
1: Thank you, Oliver. Thank you. It was lovely, as always.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch again soon. Uh, so until the next time, hope, so. hope you have a great rest of your day.
1: Thank you, and you Take care. Bye-bye.
0: All right. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info@abundantedge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.